Hey, welcome back to part two of Mark Parrish's podcast. Uh, just a little reminder, Parrish's kids are still at the house, and so you will hear them in the background talking and bouncing some balls and stuff like that. Hope it doesn't bother you too much, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. It was, that was one of the best days of my life when I got that phone call. I uh, Growing up, you don't want to be the hometown kid, right? And you just... Getting a chance to play in Minnesota. Of course, it wasn't for the North Stars, but still, I get to play in Minnesota. From Lakeley, it's how I got here. The stories behind the youth, high school, college, and professional sports journey, where it leads, and what we learn along the way. I'm Corey Koski, and on today's show, how Mark Parrish dealt with being locked out of a job, dealing with the highest high of his career and the lowest low of his career. It is September 15, 2012, and the players have been locked out by the NHL. There is a labor dispute between the NHL and the NHLPA. This was the NHL's third lockout in the 19 years since Gary Bettman became the NHL commissioner in 1993. During the 2012 lockout, many NHL players went to other leagues in North America and Europe. How did the NHL players that stayed at home deal with the lockout? Mind games. It's frustrating. We would get together and skate as much as we could, the guys that were around here. Uh, And luckily enough, we were here in in a hotbed, so there was enough NHLers. We got together three days a week. It was like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday or something because Mondays and Fridays, I think that's where we just left those open for long weekends to get away. Um, that was hard. That was a frustrating year. It, we, I think we, we, we could all sense as players that obviously the owners didn't care that we were losing a year in our prime. They didn't care about that. They just wanted financial, get the CBA, get the right contract. And so I think yet again, we, you know, it was hard not to take it somewhat personally. Um, especially for the way it was handled with the union. I mean, I can go on and on for this, where it was just no cap, no cap, no cap, no cap. And then the, the year goes by and we say, wait, whatever happened to that no cap thing? Yeah, and I think there was, there was a lot of guys. There was a lot of guys in the union that were really ticked off with how that was handled uh, through the union. I mean, they're telling us uh, Walker, uh, Scott Walker, is the one that comes to mind that, that just – he got flat out embarrassed because the, the communication with our union at that time, uh, the NHL did a perfect job. They, they absolutely broke us. And, you know, we're sitting here getting told one thing by the union, we'll never, we'll never take a cap. We're going to do this, this, and this. And Walks was on, uh, I don't know if it was Coach's Corner, I don't know what it was, um, doing an interview, saying that, and literally the interviewer says, well, you know that you, they just agreed to a cap deal and I mean on live natural TV or walks like um remember when I just said we're never gonna do a cap which I was just kidding about that. It, it was there was a lot of guys and I was one of the union reps too and I was surprised by it and I was like well I'm 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 the Islander player rep. Email, call, text, something. I mean we didn't even get really a chance to even talk to our players, let alone find out about it. And I think that more than anything. And you take that frustration carried over and pointed right at the owners, right at the right at the NHL, and that that carried over for a lot of guys. 
and it, which is unfair, it's not necessarily their fault. But I think for a lot of us, we felt for up until, yeah, the whole thing with, with Lyndon, um, uh, Goodnow, there was, the, you know, the player reps and, and a lot of us, we, we truly felt like we were, there's no way they're breaking us. Like, yeah. this union's strong. And then there was kind of some inklings. And I think the, the thing that really started the worst is when we got together for one of the many meetings up in Toronto with whoever, as many of the union, we had a, we had a few hundred players up there. And I think it was Ronick, Ronick or Domi, one or the other, um, that got up and just asked, why can't, why not a salary cap? Just, you know, normal, like, why can't we do a salary cap? What if we do a salary cap? What if we just do it as a, enough, a big enough number? Mm-hmm. You know, why can't, if they want to do a salary cap, fine, just, okay, salary cap, 100 million. You know, put it at a, a big number then, right? So it's, it's, can we do that? Wouldn't even listen. Didn't answer. The, the, the board would sit up there, Lyndon and those guys, they wouldn't even answer the question. They wouldn't even contemplate enough. And, it, and I think guys started getting frustrated with that. Like, why can't we even, nope, no cap. Nope, like, we can't even talk about it. Like, there's no way, nope, no cap. What if we did find like a soft cap, you know, baseball, taxing, something like that. Nope, it, wouldn't, it wasn't even part of the discussion. And I think that's where a lot of the players like, well, this is ridiculous. And next thing you know, you kind of, some guys going to the media saying, Salary cap, then all of a sudden everything comes out with Lyndon and how they just good. Now they just that was that was just completely wrong. Yeah, I mean, there was. I mean, Trent Clack called me. I was up in my cabin to tell me about that, and then I got a call from Urbe Artists the next day, and yeah, I was one of the first ones. I was myself and Hal Gill were the first two uh, emails that our own news, our own union uh, cracked. <laughs> and went into our emails to see what we were talking about. Well, hang on here. The union went into your emails. See, they wanted to, they're like, like probing. They're, they were trying to figure out what we were talking about or figure out like they thought because we were with Clat and artists were like, this isn't right. You should not have just hired, what's his name? Ted. Um, going blank on his name now. Little rat. Um, yeah, whoever took over the, the, the that they put in place for the union after they literally fired Goodnow. I mean, we, we didn't even have a vote as a player. Nothing. We didn't even know what happened. We got we had a, we got we were on a or it was a conference call that was set up that night, and I wasn't I couldn't be on it. We had something going on dinner or whatever. I figured it was just another conference call like we've been having weekly. No big deal. You don't be on all of them. And Liute, Mike Liute was my agent. He called me up. And he was, he's, as an agent, he was very big into the union, too. Uh, lawyer, law degree. He's like, they fired Bob. What? You got to get on that call tonight. He's like, I think they fired Bob already. Why did they, how did, who? And he started going, and, and I was just blown away. Like, how could they not even, just the board decide that's okay and that's right? And sure enough, got on the board meeting. I remember sending Leo a text, yep, I guess we did. And that was just the beginning of the end. At that point, it was just, we were completely divided. Because guys, and, and it wasn't even guys, there's plenty of guys who were like, okay, fine. Because I think, and I'm one of them that, I was frustrated because Bob was the one that was the most vocal on, nope, no salary cap, nope, absolutely not. Like, wouldn't listen to it, wouldn't talk about it. It, it. it almost seemed like this wasn't about what was best for the NHL or the NHLPA. It was like a big old pissing contest between Bettman and Goodnow. That's what it felt like for a lot of us. Uh, 
it, well, it wasn't any selfish thing. Like we didn't, you know, whatever. But it was, it was really frustrating for us that he, you know, like I said, he wouldn't do anything with that. Well, I, I guess that was there was guys on the board that were like, hey, I think we should at least talk about it. What's wrong with at least talking about it? Nope, nope, nope. And that's where it went wrong. I know there's been some other, who knows, behind the scenes. And yeah, it was. They decided that it was time to take him out and put in Ted. God, I'm going blank on his name. I keep saying Lindsay, but I know yeah. it's not. Yeah, and yeah, it's just man. And then and then next the, the freaking conference calls, the meetings. When we got to Toronto, it, it was yelling at each other. Oh, I, I mean, it was. It went from, like I said, the majority of us, we really thought we were, <laughs> we were strong and united and it, like no way the NHL is going to break us in the union to holy crap, we are in trouble right now as a union. Just, it almost went to the fact where I, that's where guys were just like, oh my God, all right, fine, I'm not, if this is what's going to happen, like let's get this over with and get at least get half a year, yeah. third of a year. Like this is money we're not getting back. Nobody's going to get this year back. At least let's get something out of it. And at that point, yeah, the NHL has. They could do whatever they wanted at that point. Coming up, Mark signs with the Minnesota Wild, and he is super excited. Stay with us. I'm Corey Koski, and you're listening to How I Got Here from Linklate. Hey, this is Corey Koski. I'm the former major leaguer that got this crazy idea of using sports stories to hopefully encourage youth and high school athletes and their parents as they are on their journey. Since retiring, I have coached over 85 youth sports teams over the last 12 years, and I have seen our world change. Our kids and their parents are more insecure than ever. We are comparing others' best presentation of themselves against how we view ourselves. We are comparing our real life to another's highlight reel. This is not fair. Real life is full of adversity. You will see in all our stories, we are all gonna get knocked down. The successful people get back up and dust themselves off and continue to move forward. There is so much good that can come out of adversity if we allow it. As my mom said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We are looking for sponsors to help us on our mission of connecting youth sports for good. If you'd like to sponsor our podcast, you can email me at Corey.Koski at linkleak.com. That's Corey.Koski at linkleak.com. With the right partners, we can connect youth sports for good and change this world. Welcome back to How I Got Here from Linkleak. So the strike is over, and Mark plays one more year with the Islanders. And during the 2005-2006 season, he gets traded at the deadline to the LA Kings. As his one-year contract expires at the end of that season, becomes an unrestricted free agent. And he signs for a five-year deal with the Minnesota Wild. That was, that was one of the best days of my life when I got that phone call. I, uh, growing up, he doesn't want to be the hometown kid, right? And he just... Getting a chance to play in Minnesota. Of course, it wasn't for the North Stars, but still, I get to play in Minnesota. Mom and Dad got to come to the games. You know, my brother, nephew, the whole family, all my friends. Uh, I loved the support that I got, not just from my family, but from people. They were, the fans were uber respectful of me. Like, they were, they, 
never wanted to bug me. They never, I didn't get asked for tickets. I didn't, all the stuff that I was really expecting, none. I think my parents did a great job of that, of making sure the family's just like, if you want tickets, you guys go through me. Don't, you know, leave Mark alone, let him play. Um, Lemaire did not like that, however. Uh, I knew I was in trouble when one of the first meetings we had, um, and he said, uh, families for summer. You're a hockey player. You wife, kids, families for summer. And I went, oh, Lord, I don't think this is going to go well because my parents just got passes to come down after each game. And it was about a week later where Mike Ramsey came to me and like, you know, Jacques kind of thinks that your parents are a bit of a distraction right now, so maybe you don't want them to come off the game. Well, Rice probably was the one that gave him the passes. I didn't even ask for him. And where's the communication there as an organization. Like, I didn't go up and say, can I have these passes? The GM literally is like, here, I got a couple of passes for your parents. So this is just to come down just after Just to come the down after the game. Just like any other fans, a pass list, whatever. Wives, whatever. But for okay. some reason, I don't know if it was a mind trick. I don't know what he was doing, but yeah. So Lemaire didn't like that? No. And he would, multiple, multiple times, families are for summer. And that was a big reason I came back here was a family. Not that I wanted to bring them in anywhere. You know, I wasn't... Nothing like that, by all means. But, you know, I was looking forward to having my kids play around in the locker room. You know, Rolston's kids were doing that for a while, and right around that same time, you know, Jacques just decided that families were a distraction. He didn't want them to be part of it, which to me was, was asinine and just me. Yeah. So how did the players react to that? Uh, not, yeah, I was, I was probably the, I was the least vocal about it, but I believe it affected me the most I think you know it where it wasn't a distraction before this it never even crossed my mind all of a sudden it was now I'm making now I'm on my mind was all right well god I hope my brother doesn't you know come down or doesn't whatever my parents all of a sudden there was this worry where there just wasn't beforehand so when he was trying to take away a distraction actually all he did was just make a distraction because then I was I was kind of pissed off I was frustrated that was one of the reasons I came home. That was one of the discussions I had with Doug before I signed. It was like, hey, I love it. Like I'm, you know, he loved the fact that we're family, grow up here, you know, be part of it. We're, we're a family-oriented organization. Uh, Nikki got, even got a card from Bob Nagley, the owner and everything. Love families, this and that, flowers. Uh, everybody seemed to be on that page in the organization, except for the most important one to me, my direct boss, was not into that at all. And that was just, that was, that was his, that was how he, how he operated. I, talking to Mario Tremblay and guys in Montreal, that was just how he was. When the hockey season, he played hockey. His wife understood that. His, I mean, his wife was hardly even in Minnesota. He was there alone most of the time. And it just, that was just the way he was. I don't know too many guys that are like that. Mm -hmm. So he played three years, um, and then they bought out your, your contract. What was, what was that like? One of the worst days of my life. Um, did they phone? Did, like, yep. how, did, how did that go? Yeah, it was a phone call. And I was told that they weren't buying me out. And Jacques was going to retire. He was done. He told us twice that year he was done. He was retiring. He's not coming back. He was that frustrated with us. So I was like, thank God. I, I'm just get a chance at a clean slate. Whoever the hell they bring in, like, I couldn't wait for the season to start to get going. Like, just put the last two years behind me, and let's move on. Like, it is what it is. It's over with. I just remember sitting on the couch and ESPN watches Sports Center, breaking. Jacques Lemaire has decided to stay for another year. 
and Nikki was in the kitchen. I turned around and looked at her. Uh-oh. And I, I, I actually expected to get traded. Now, first looking back on it, because of the minutes he played me, because of my numbers and the salary, I was like, not a soul anybody's going to take that contract. Um, I don't see it that way because I know I could have done better. That confidence thing. And um, it was a couple days later, uh, and the phone rang, and it was the offices, the wild offices, and I just remember looking at the color ID. I looked at Nikki and I said, uh, I think I'm getting bought out, man. And sure enough, it was Doug and he, oh, Mark, you know, just, and it really cracked me up. It was the first thing, I just want you to know, this is my decision. I did not talk to Jacques about this. I didn't, well, I wasn't thinking that, but now I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, why? That was a really weird and odd thing to start the conversation with. Yeah. Like, just, why did he even have to say that? Who cares? I mean, and, and so obviously I realized that, yeah, it was, it was probably a lot of shock. And yeah, it was, hey, sorry, we're going to put you on waivers and uh, probably expect you to clear, gonna, you know, then they're going to buy out. And uh, I remember it being just heartbroken. I was, just went from I couldn't wait that summer to get back at it. I was working harder in the summer than I had in a couple years. Not that I was lazy in the other summers, but just that much more determined. Um, and man, my world just collapsed. Uh, I, there's a Shinedown song, uh, the dark, your darkest hour never comes in the night. And uh, that was true. I mean, that day was, that was, from when I signed in Minnesota, one of the greatest days of my life to one of the worst days of my life. And I just remember being just in a fog. Uh, the rest of that summer, I, I was, I was just out of it. I didn't, I didn't work. I, I, I backed off on the, on working out, not not necessarily on time, but my heart wasn't as in it anymore. My head, the, the focus, the determination was gone. And not that that affected what happened in Dallas by any means, um, but, well, it had to have affected what happened in Dallas by far. That's a horrible, that's a ridiculous comment, actually. Of course it had to have uh, affected it. Um, but yeah, again, uh, the attitude thing. So, now you're 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 midsummer. Uh, you don't have a team. You just got bought out. Now you're in kind of no man's land. And you look at kind of the rest of your your kind of career. You know you're a little bit in the AHL. You come up for a little bit. You play a couple games. You sign uh, a tryout for this team. Like, what was the the last part of your career? And, and as you're going through that, at what points are you going like, look, I'm done? And then you're like, okay, one more try. Okay, I'm done. Okay, one more try. And how influential was your wife and your family kind of decision through this process? Uh, Nikki, my wife, is unbelievable. She's always been unbelievable. She's always been incredibly supportive. I knew I could still play in the NHL. Uh, the hard part is everyone from the outside, the only people that really knew what happened in Minnesota, what was going on in Minnesota were the people in Minnesota. Yeah, there's some articles. Yeah, you know a little bit about it. But for the most part, the NHL is going to look at, okay, well, look at his stats. They've gradually gone down the last two years, and Minnesota must be losing it a bit. The minutes played, there's a lot of things that go into that. I still felt like I could play. Uh, the other thing was uh, they shouldn't have been able to buy me out because I was never cleared from my – I had two concussions. First 
two concussions on record in the NHL, and within a couple months of each other, the doctors never cleared me for my because I got KO'd in game one against Colorado. Um, kind of myself did it with the help of Ruslan Soleil's stick, just going to the wall, went to crossover, stepped right on his stick. Feet went off from under me and I was face first into the boards, out like a light. And I was, they were thinking that maybe I could be cleared by game seven, but we lost in six. Just the doctors, it was whatever. We were, I was, I, it was kind of funny because I, I went and saw them a couple of times in the summer. I never even realized that they were still checking up on me. I didn't realize I was never cleared from a concussion. Nothing, as far as I know. They were thinking I could play game seven, possibly, never for fact, but I took it that, okay, fine, I must be fine now, it's been a couple weeks. Um, I, had a, I had a schedule to go see uh, a neurologist, uh, then one of the neurologists just to do more of uh, the, uh, the baseline, which I didn't realize was testing, I thought we were just doing that to get ready for the next year, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, so that absolutely affected my game. Looking back on it, 100% is the reason that I was I couldn't play in the NHL anymore. Watching games, which I always hated doing, in Dallas, there was just moments. Uh, I could go into specifics, but there was just moments where, like, what? I just realized the game must have passed me by. So I didn't make a I didn't make a play. I didn't make a right play. Or sometimes I just froze. I didn't even make any play. Uh, there was a three on one. I'm coming down the right side. Uh, if there is not for me any odd man rush, if there is not a absolute layup of a play of a pass. I'm shooting. Mm -hmm. That's it. By the top, that was one of the things I learned from Dino Cicerelli. You, you're a shooter. You better have your mind made up by the top of the circles. What you're going to do. I literally skated into the corner with the puck. I didn't pass. I didn't shoot. And you could see me like I'm looking around. And I just went into the corner. I couldn't process it. My mm -hmm. brain wasn't, just couldn't process it. At the time, I was like, man, I guess the game has passed me by. Now that I'm doing a lot more work with the neurologist, I mean, there's no doubt, 100%, that concussions ended my career. So you're doing work with a neurologist now? Now, yeah. Yeah. Doc Jeremy Schmo at the gyro stim machine, which is actually kind of fun. But yeah, I, I've got my diet, everything. I mean, I, everything's been changed. Uh, man, I've lost a ton of weight because obviously I can't eat gluten. It's gluten. I was surprised to find out that the system, body, part of your system that affects your brain the most was your stomach, mm -hmm. your intestinal stuff. So that was the first thing. I had to go a month with like meat. I could eat the protein, the fat from the meat, and water. That was it. No pop, no drinking, no nothing, just absolutely nothing. And then they gradually, so they got me down to, to, to rock bottom more or less with what I had in my system. And then gradually worked my way up. And as soon as gluten or anything got back into the system, I mean, the tests, my eyes, my left mind was a vestibular system. So I didn't even realize my eyes were shaking for the last decade. And uh, almost instantly, I started to feel lethargic, started to get headaches, started to feel. And so that was right off the bat. All right, no more gluten for you. You're, for all intents and purposes, you're allergic to gluten with all the... Uh, the head stuff, and there's a couple other things. Most of the stuff I've gotten put back in, but, but the big, big thing is gluten. So why did you decide to start going to this neurologist? 
my brother, Nikki, my mom, my mom and dad, and my bro knew something was wrong. They knew something was wrong. I, uh, I, I, I felt normal. You know, I, I played the last few years. I just accepted the fact that I thought it was my time. You never know when your time's over. All right, well, I, I want to keep playing hockey. Fine, I'm not an NHLer, but a lot of it was kids. I wanted my kids, I wanted my kids to remember Dad playing hockey. I don't know if Turner does. I mean, they, but playing, not that he just played. Gianna does. She brings up games and everything. Uh, the buses didn't bother me. I've been doing it for so long. Anyway, that, that was nothing. I like the fact that in the American League, it's there all, you bus two and a half, three hours, play the game, bus back that night. So there wasn't the overnights with a young family, wife and kids. Uh, I like being a mentor. I, I enjoyed being the older guy on the team. I, I knew my role was that, was to help. You know, I was, I was a, a more or less a player coach, mm -hmm. was, was my role. And I knew that going into him. So I enjoyed that part of it. That's why I kept playing. And broke my shoulder, got two more concussions, um, which then now, of course, I don't know if that's still just the same one or whatever, but added to it. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was a couple years ago. I thought it healed up, all the rest of my body, for the most part, healed up. You know, it was always aches and pains as you get older. Um, but they, they knew something was wrong. So now you, you retire from hockey, um, and now you transition, uh, you go... Like how's the transition being? How's the transition being from professional to now back into the quote unquote real world? Civilian life. Yeah. Um, it's tough. Yeah, it, it, it's hard. Um, I remember talking to my wife and friends, and they're, well, you know, hockey players. Being a hockey player doesn't define you. It's 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 not your identity. It's not it's not who you are. Well, it didn't take long for me to realize, but. I liked that. Yeah. I liked my identity. It, it, was, it was a pride. I didn't be an NHL. Hell yeah, I'm an NHLer. I play in the NHL. I'm a professional hockey player. I liked that identity. So it, it, was, it was like mourning. It's, it's like losing a, a friend or a, or a family member. It, it, you, I went through mourning uh, for longer than I expected. Uh, and I don't know how much that maybe attests to the concussion or whatnot. Um, yeah, and you miss it still to this day. I mean, there's certain things I still miss, and it just, you get to a point where uh, I was tired of being sad about it, you know? I didn't, I didn't, uh, felt like it was affecting me being a father and, and a husband that I was just depressed, and I had just had to find ways to move on. I started, I'm so glad that my wife and Brett Hedekin and Ben Clymer talked me into doing the St. Cloud, the color games at St. Cloud, because I went bonkers that first winter, just not having anything to do, that daily routine of practice, and then games, anything to look forward to. If I didn't have those 20 games, I don't even, I don't think my wife would be with me anymore because I was such a bear. I, I just was frustrated. And luckily that, with that, it's gotten me to focus. And then I started coaching high school hockey. As I started to get back into the game and more involved in the game, uh, I realized there was still a spot. And that's where uh, instead of mourning the, the loss of, my one career and geez, what the heck am I going to do to turning and now focusing on what's next, which I wish I would have done early on because as all of the people say, they're right. The longer you get out, the longer you're out of it, the harder it is to get back in. So if, if you know, and there were some op options there for me to stick around and uh, help coach in the American League. And I just, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to watch my kids grow up you know, a little bit. Uh, I don't regret that at all. I might as well, but I wish, I wish I would have 
maybe stuck around and done a little bit more right away. Uh, but yeah, now it's now it's now it's just focusing on what you know the next career. So last question: You won the state champ, the high school state championship as a player, and you won as a coach. What's the different feelings between the two? I appreciated it a lot more as a coach. Uh, 25 years to the day after I won it as a sophomore. God, that made me feel old just saying that. Um, I think as a player one, we were, we were a dynasty and there was pressure to win. We were expected to win. So not that it was a surprise, not that we didn't celebrate, not that we weren't proud of ourselves, but it was, it was God, I don't wanna say this, but it was almost easy. Mm -hmm. um, then waiting, you know, fast forward 25 years as a coach, uh, trying to get through to these kids and, uh, you know, how many times you repeat yourself and you have no idea what's going to happen if they're going to go out there. You know, if they just go out there and they play their hardest, good chance they're going to win the game. You realize how difficult it is. You realize how hard it is, how, how, how much more I appreciated it as a coach, uh, the parents, everything, everyone that's involved in it. Uh, I, 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 I tell that to everybody that the, the, this one with Orno uh, meant more, meant more to me. I felt, um, yeah, you're so focused on yourself. I feel like I was just doing my job at Jefferson as opposed to a coach. It's everybody. It's getting everybody. It's keeping everybody on board. And when you can get 20 kids uh, that are, well, way more intelligent and way more mature than I was in high school, that's for sure. But to buy in, and when I watched them celebrate, I didn't shed a tear once when I was a player. I had trouble keeping the tears from Niagara Falls while I was on TV. Because uh, I was so proud of those kids. As a, where I just, I never really felt that pride when I played. I was excited, but it was just like, eh, yeah, of course we won. Young, arrogant, whatever you want to call it. As opposed to, yeah, as, a, as an adult, how, how rare it is, how hard it is. I think a lot of it has to do with, too, with it being a professional. Every single year, you know how hard it is to win, whether it's a championship at high school, whether it's at the, the uh, bigs with the World Series, whether it's a Stanley Cup, Olympic, whatever it is, one team goes home happy every year. One team. That's it. You can have a great year, and you're still disappointed because you didn't win. So just whether it's that, anytime you win a championship, it deserves to be celebrated. So at the end of your career here, you look back, and do you feel that you were lucky? Do you think that you were lucky to have the people around you? Or do you feel that it was a mixture of that you made your own luck because of your work, work ethic and you had to make your luck and because you make, then you make your luck and then you take your luck? Yeah, I, it's a little, yeah, a little bit of both. There's, um, I know for a fact without, you know, it takes a village without my wife, without my brother, uh, my friends, my parents, uh, not just shielding me, helping me, but, but pushing me. I, I mean, my brother would, if he wasn't there when I was working out near the end of my career, he would call me. What'd you do? Mm -hmm. like, if, and if I didn't give him the right answers, I knew he was coming over and he was like, no, no, you skip this, get your, you're not getting lazy on me now. You know, and uh, he, he held me very much accountable for anything off ice, uh, or on ice in the summer. I mean, he was never, during the season, he, he never, yeah, he wouldn't do that. Um, mom and dad just 
having fun? How's he, you know, making sure that I wouldn't get too down, I wouldn't get depressed? Uh, same with Nikki, and, and uh, yeah, I, it took. I would say the more everybody helped me out. I, it's it's really hard to do alone, whether it's because you got kids and you know Nikki being a more or less stay-at-home mom for however many times a year, or however many months out of the year, then the summer. Um, at the same time, I, I know a lot of my success, uh, my talent that got me and kept me in NHL, that was a lot of work for me. Nothing really came easy. I was not a, I never really did anything great. I just did everything well. You know, I was, the, the work I had to put in just to skating to keep up, uh, scoring goals. Uh, obviously, Dino Cicerelli started out. The one year that I got to me was the worst year of my career, even though statistically, the, I think one of the wild years was. But that was by far because that was my fault. That was nobody else's fault but mine. I was bitter. I didn't do the work after practice to you know, get. So I was getting rebounds in front, and I wasn't quite getting them under the bar. I wasn't quite scoring them. You know, of course, at the time, it's, ah, Dang, it's just one of those years they just don't go in. Now I look back and I'm like, well, of course I wasn't hitting the corners anymore. I wasn't doing the same drills that I've been doing for the last couple of years where I had a lot of success. Uh, so my work, now looking back, I know my work had a hand in, my work ethic had a hand in that. Uh, but I had a lot of help keeping the attitude, uh, keeping that mentality going, staying sharp uh, with that. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good mixture of both. Thanks for listening to the show this week. What I learned from the show today is that a leader needs to remove barriers, not add barriers. The most important factor to success for an individual and a team is culture. Without that, you have nothing. Make sure to check out the website, www.linkly.com for more stories. If you have any questions or wanna have a discussion about anything you heard in this podcast, or anything that you want to share, ask me on Linkleet's Facebook page. If you'd like to Twitter us, you can do that at Linkleet47. I'm Corey Kosky. You've been listening to How I Got Here from Linkleet. A special thanks to Wade Beavers, Sean Lee, Jim Koslowski, and Maria Holmes.